How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to our podcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and it's my privilege to have Dr. John David Hanna on the broadcast again. If you have not listened to last week's episode, you must need to listen to that episode. Uh, John has written most recently two books, and there's more information about him in the show notes, but they are by Kriegel Press, and they are called Invitation to Church History World an invitation to church history, American. And I don't typically talk about books and layout. This book is a feast to the eyes as well as to your uh, reading abilities because what John has done with his team is to put together graphs and charts and timelines and even some great pictures of people like Karl Marx. So what's not to like, right, John? Thanks for being back on the broadcast, John. Thank you. Now, this volume two is shorter, so we should be able to get through it in like a two less minutes because we talked about the world last time. Now we're just going to talk about America. Let's talk about the way you divided the book again. I like to always hear the author's intent. You talk about the earliest colonialist, and then you go into the shaping of religion in British America, the birth of our nation, the new nation here in America, the democratic experience and so forth. So walk us through because you're not a date and time guy, generally speaking. Why did you organize it this way? I, I think the, the secular textbooks do very much in part. So I, I tried to follow uh, something common. So typically you talk about a colonial period, which ends with the birth of the nation. So colonialism, usually 1607, 1620, depending on criteria, to the revolutionary period. So the colonial period is an era under British hegemony, by and large. We were not a nation. The national period is the period of national birth. So it begins with the issues of revolution and the establishment of our unique civil body politic and how that worked out. That's called the national period, national birth. Usually it goes to a reconstruction, the end of reconstruction in 1877, so 1880, around eight. And then the modern period, what dominates us? Well, in the colonial period, it was British colonialism. Uh, in the national period, it's the birth of the republic and the implications of the coming of qualified democracy as impacts upon the churches, uh, certainly on anthropology. And then in the modern period, the issue is the coming of science, technology, rationalism, skepticism. And then uh, postmodernism hits us right after the Vietnam War era down to this day. So I divided it into four parts for that reason. When the early Christians, whether you want to call them, uh, I know there's a debate about they were deist or not Christians, but when the early Christians came from uh, the UK to the US, and we can talk about this in so many different ways from, you know, Plymouth, John Smith, I mean, Mayflower, you can, lots of ways you can talk about it. What are they fleeing, John, and why are they coming here? Well, they came to express their religious prejudices, among others and within their own enclave, allow others not that privilege. So they came to create a world. I would say 
the vast majority of the early settlers had a profound, deep Protestant heritage or worldview. We operated out of a Christian worldview. That's more important to say than they are Christians. We'll leave that to the world. Okay. But many were. But we operated under a set of beliefs that the Bible was true. It was to be believed, read, and enacted. And these people, by and large, felt restriction in Europe, and therefore they opted to start over again 3,000 miles away. We have Congregationalists. You have Baptist, Presbyterian, Quaker, Mennonite, Moravian, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, Anglican. They're all coming to the United States, or in those ports, it's, it's the colonies, the colonial time. How did they get along? Uh, they didn't. Well, bottom line, if you wanted religious freedom, you would go to New England. Otherwise, you don't have it. But only if you're a congregationalist. So it's very narrow. Ask Mary Dyer of the Quakers. So they didn't come in New England to establish religious liberty. They came to practice their prejudice. Now, in the middle colonies, influenced by the Quakers, there is religious liberty. So if you're a Baptist, Methodist, not later Methodist, Presbyterian, I think you better go to uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, if you're in the southern colonies, it's Anglicanism is the received religion, and the others are just dissenters. You can, you can survive on the frontier, uh, but you're powerless. So there never was complete freedom, one would say, of religion. Which, which is ironic because this is what they're escaping. is a monarchy that tells them what they can believe. Yeah, they're escaping one to establish another. And that tells us a lot about human nature. Yeah, I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you have a special love for the Puritans, I heard it throughout your lectures in uh, my master's in my demon program. Give us a painting for people that don't know much. I mean, we have pejorative views of the Puritans, but you have a much better insight. Well, a Puritan is a person, an English, he's English, Protestant, who believes that the Church of England is not Protestant enough. It is not pure, restored, biblical Christianity. And he wants to practice what he thinks is that Puritan. So a Puritan is one who wants to purify the Church. That's all it is. We unfortunately take pictures of them uh, going to church where they all wore black. And they were serious about church. Now, the beauty of the Puritan, I think, is that he understood sin and he understood grace. Far better than I think others have in other traditions. That's the beauty of them. You mentioned in broad strokes for a moment ago about you know Lutherans and Baptists and so forth and so on. Lutherans become, they're a little later to the game, are they not? Yeah, well, they're a trickle. They will trickle in in the 1700s. But in the 1600s, you'll have Dutch Reformed, yes. Anglican. In New England, they came by the thousands, and they came, they brought their own church constituency with them in many cases. In these other denominations or other traditions, they came as individuals and found each other here. So it's, it's different depending on geography. That's an interesting observation because we don't think of that when we look back on history. We think of, you know, the pilgrims coming over and building a chapel and whether it was yeah. Jamestown or Plymouth, you know, we have this sort of romantic idea. No, I, I don't think so. I think Presbyterians, many of them, Scots-Irish, 
pastors were sent over to collect them after they were here. So they weren't all coming over for an opportunity for religious freedom. There were opportunistic people, just like there are today. Yeah, I think they came for God, glory, and money. What's changed? Uh, a new way of life. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we don't have, we're, we're more than religious beings. We're flesh and blood. Sure. And, so, and all these different facets of our being impose upon each other. So it's hard to talk about a single factor. Great Awakening. What's happened? We would think it was a, really a, a deep moving of the Spirit of God. And, you know, the problem with a society that believes the Bible is true is they can confuse believing the Bible is true with the gospel. So if these people are raised on creeds and catechisms, they could tell you the Westminster Confession of Faith, they burned it as a child, but did they know Jesus? They knew about him, but did they know him? And that's the trouble of a creedal tradition. You believe your creeds. So... The Puritan would teach a heartfelt religion. So what's happening in this awakening? I, I think people are finally realizing that redemption doesn't occur in the mind. It occurs in the heart. We call it now personal faith, but I think that's sort of not a very good word right now, postmodernism. Well, everything loses meaning in context the way it's used, yeah. right? I mean, we read about an awakening, and you think of, you know, and, and even in your book, you outline the first great awakening, the second great awakening, largely on the heels of Finney, and then you've yeah. got Layman's Prayer Revival, which is uh, at Civil War, and then the era of the great evangelists, and then of course yeah. we come to this character we know named Billy Graham. So that's a lot of territory, and I, I remind our folks often we're coming up on what two hundred and forty-five years this year, twenty twenty-one will be two hundred forty for a country that's this powerful, this young, this wealthy. More has happened in that two hundred and forty-some years than arguably any other religious movement, quote-unquote, in the globe? Yeah, I don't think our nation began as a distinctly Christian nation at all. Right, but I'm saying what's transpired in those 247 oh, yeah. years. I mean, uh, what I'm arguing is that the foundation of this country, what people operated out of, was a profoundly Christian world. And I think the virtues of Christianity took a two centuries to abate. Now we're just looking inward. We're not looking upward. I call it horizontal Christianity. There's no longer a vertical relationship of thee, yeah. thou, you. It's I, me, my. Yeah, it's more than as the French say. <laughs> Sad. We need another awakening, maybe. Oh, I, I think we need one. I think we need a real revival, not a, not a reformation. Okay, since you used the word revival, I'm going to ask you. This is a side-sidebar. Revival only comes when the Spirit of God chooses? Yeah, when he shows up, unexpectedly stays. There's no 10 steps to cause a revival like I've been told in seminars? No, there are factors present in a revival, but you can have those factors present and not have one. Prayer, telling the gospel, concern for neighbors, discipline in the church, preaching of the gospel. Those are the things that attend when God does something. But they're not causes. They're symptoms. We can't get up a revival, but, you know, at least we can ask. Yes. If it's his will. And local churches, and this is just my little, you know, 
pastoral theological hack observation. Churches are no longer teaching the scripture. They're not teaching a clear gospel. Everything is the word gospel now. It's just sort of an ad- adjective we attach to anything. I, I think we should not call ourselves Christians. I think we should call ourselves Christ followers because no one likes that guy. And because they don't, it, it makes it clear what we are. But that'll change in two decades. Or less, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. One of I'm our other... a word that has meaning, uh, and it, you always have to change that. One of our uh, friends, Prof Hendricks, with the Lord now, often said, give it a decade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when some movement or trend would come along, he'd say, give it a decade, see how it, yeah. uh, how it works. We've had problems and all that. What's happened within Anglicanism as we've seen it? Because the English version before the colonies was very different. And now we're almost seeing a refined Anglican movement that would be more agreeable with us Protestants. Yeah, well, Anglianism or Episcopalianism, Church of England, depending on what term to use, puts a large emphasis on the unity of the church. So within that church, apostolic unity of the church, uh, you have quite diversity. But the percentages of that diversity changes. Right now, we're seeing an evangelical surge in Episcopalianism. That segment. They don't divide, they just segment. And we're seeing a lot of Protestant of other denominations joining uh, Episcopalianism. Why? Because I think Americans don't want to attend a church that looks like the society. You mean I can't have a worship service on an Awana game circle or under a basketball goal? The neon lights. Um, no, I think in a world of tragedy, people like solemnness and quietness. And they want to look up, not around. Are we not always overcompensating for the egregious natures of our past? I mean, it seems like, you know, was it you who said, no, it was Carl Henry who said, why did the liberal churches always get the buildings? The liberal split, you know, and and you go meet in a warehouse. I mean, Dallas Seminary started out with nothing, you know. That's what we do. Christianity, real Christianity is always losing and always winning. In that order, unfortunately, right? Right now, it might be a little dark. But it won't be in another day. A little dark. I like your attitude. A little dark, he says. Okay, we got to talk about Edwards and Owens just a little bit, even though I'm not following a good outline here, because I know they're two of your favorites. Okay. Uh, well, uh, why am I attracted to Owen? Of course, Owen was Brit, uh, the best of the Puritans. In other words, a Puritan would say when a person helps them, he would say, he or she speaks to my condition. How does John Owen, the Puritan, speak to my condition? I think he makes more sense out of walking with God realistically without promising too much or too little. And therefore, I have become attached to him. I wrote a book on him recently. Yes. Duncan Edwards taught me that conversion occurs in the heart. It does not occur in the mind. The mind collects information, but the heart makes decisions. All the heart is is the mechanism of aversion or attraction. That leads to choice, choice to option. Uh, so I think because of liberalism, we have taught the Bible as a textbook in the pulpit. So our people know the Bible, but do they know the Christ of the Bible? That becomes the great question. If you're talking historically, sure. Currently, you think our people know the Bible, John? Uh, well, increasingly, no. Uh, we've got that problem, too. 
I, I think our churches have failed fundamentally in educating our youth because the youth is the future. We're the past. Uh, we commentate on the past. I resemble that remark. <laughs> so talk to us about the rise and fall of the seminary. I believe you gave me an abstract. I don't yeah. have it, and I've been unable to find it. Was the rise and fall of Andover? Yeah, Andover created because of Unitarianism sweeping New England congregationalism. So it was found in 1808. It was Trinitarian, solid. By 1880, it became a citadel of creeping liberalism. They denied the existence of hell. In the past century, it merged with Harvard. It ended the school. So it, it came and it went. And if I remember that abstract, they compared and contrasted against Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all these other seminaries that were founded, correct me, to train yeah. men to be ministers yeah. and over time became liberal arts Christian schools and over time yeah. became universities. And that's the tendency. I mean, we're, we're all fighting limited numbers. So if you're fighting limited numbers of constituents, you might change the method of attraction. And usually our method of attraction is diversity. Uh, so we create programs that ultimately weakens other programs. Well, let, let me clarify. The way you use diversity is very different than the way the nomenclature today is. You're saying diversity in programs for these schools to offer That's more it. programs that attract more yeah, students. Social work, uh, psychology. Liberal arts, popular, fem- women's studies, yeah. et cetera. Okay. Yeah. In, so, in schools, media arts is big stuff. But the proliferation of MAs, I think, not to denigrate them, no. um, they're wonderful. But you're off mission now. You're off mission of uh, for what a seminary began as. Yeah. And, well, and it, this illustratively, go ahead. Yeah, when does your vision become so broad, it becomes unfocused? In the seminaries, I don't think we're there to train everybody. We're to train um, hardcore Marines. Simple task, go out and do it uh, without color and flavor. They'll, they'll pick up how to do it as foot soldiers. Yeah. We're foundational, nuts and bolts, unadorned. We don't need to smile a lot, but we smile inside. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, but we're serious because we're serious about the Savior in this church, and that is what makes us cry. You know, Timothy Dwight. Speaking of the church, for her, my tears all shed. So we're not trying to build a kingdom here. We're trying to love what Jesus loves, his church. You know, in my 40 years of doing this in different places and settings, I've been struck by the number of pastors that will say my church. And I don't know where I got it from, but every fiber in my being just rise not to chop their head off to say, wait, it ain't your church. You and I serve a savior. It's his church. And it's so interesting. We, we, how are being, we are being paid to have the privilege of service. Okay. A little bit off tangent here, but I was struck in this text by one picture set me on my heels. 1894, the American Tract Society, 23 story building. Yeah. To think John, there was a time when we needed a 23 story building 
on Fifth Avenue in broad, near Broadway, New York City, of all places, to produce pamphlets to talk about the gospel, about heaven, about hell, about sin. And now, is there even a museum of 800 square feet? Yeah. Well, here's my theory. Christianity needs two things to operate, common grace and special grace. Common grace is that gift of God, regardless of a person's spiritual status, that is an inward gyroscope of care, concern, etc., etc., of others. We have not lost special grace in this country. We have lost common grace. But you can't have an understanding of special grace unless you have a culture for its understanding. We have lost the culture. Husbands loving their wives, parents loving their children, parents teaching their children. So what are you doing on Sunday afternoon? That's when we should teach our kids. Take them to a park, have fun, play. You're teaching them love, commitment, virtue. Uh, we have lost that. And so we have become an isolated entity in the sidelines. It's sad. I always say to the student, I don't know that we need to pray for more gospel preachers. Maybe we do. We really need to pray for more common grace. And that's what's lost. I, I often try to encourage our, our folks to smile at the future, meaning yeah. that you don't have to be angry about no. what's going on with the church down the street, as you refer to it, or the LGBTQA quote Christian book that just came out. It doesn't accomplish anything. No. It doesn't win any arguments. But if I love that person, if I'm kind, if I'm not mad at them, if I treat Cindy well in front of, I, I tell people all the time, especially young pastors, imperceptible influence. You think you're doing this in ministry, they're seeing how you treat your wife. They're okay. seeing if you empty a garbage can. They're seeing if you're nice to the kid and the church is being unruly. They don't care that much about what no. you say unless no. they see this person's nice. This person loves Christ. This person's real. In other words, the way to solve a deficiency is not merely to attack the deficiency. More importantly, is to create a more viable alternative. Because you can't choose what you don't want. You're creating something to know. Model. I remember years ago, another student of yours and a good friend of mine, Charlie Boyd, and I were in seminary and post-seminary talking about the methodology of sharing the gospel and, you know, whether it's a pamphlet with four spiritual laws or the good news, bad news or whatever, those are methods that are used in their fine, well, and good. But one of the things he and I observed was just in the Gospel of John, you have seven key people. Christ does not talk about himself the same way to those seven people. He'll say to a lady, he'll say to a lady, go get your husband. He'll say to a religious man, don't you know? What you should know. No, he doesn't. And uh, I think package ways to share the gospel is fine. They it's can a be starting fun. place. It's a starting They're place. They're on a bicycle. Yeah. And so we don't want to Talk to me about the Pew Foundation, the fundamentalist movement, the fundamentalist of the faith volumes, how that affected American Christianity. Well, I, I think they were wonderful. You know, they were done prior to the great chaos of the 1920s. Uh, in other words, I think the thing to understand is that the words fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical, Bible believer, they're all synonyms until the 1940s. 
in the 1940s, fundamentalism separated from conservatism, not in doctrine, but in attitudes toward liberals, we hated them, or toward Billy Graham for his social connections with liberals, or secondary separation. So fundamentalism is more, it's an evangelical with a attitude of hostility. <laughs> um, I don't mean to be unkind. I, no, I, I, I like, because I can refer to myself as ornery. I probably would have been a good fundamentalist, but I'm too liberal in other places. So. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm certainly a fundamentalist, but a fundamentalist about what? Right. Becomes the issue. And we all pride ourselves by being, you know, Human identity, significance in human identity is by contrast. That's how we all feel significant. That's sin. But carry that too far and you've really got a problem. So Pew uh, sends these out to 7,000-some pastors around the country, um, and they become sort of a what once was the National Evangelical Association, which I won't comment about today, but it was trying to draw a baseline going, these are the fundamentals of the faith, and certainly nothing's perfect, but it was a really good step forward in declaring, especially people that didn't have education or access to books. I think this, when you have a common enemy, you have more friends than when you're trying to identify yourself and build your movement. Right. In other words, when we fractured when we were fighting liberals, which was right, we didn't look at our minor distinctives as virtues because we looked at something greater, a common enemy. But once the common enemy defeated us and we had to reorganize, redefine ourselves, uh, then we divide. We divide over millennialism, we divide over separationism, hairstyles, all, all kinds of what we would call ancillary issues at times. Not that millennialism isn't important, but is it a gospel? You know, I, I want to go to war with as many people because the larger the body, my chances of returning are greater. <laughs> I heard you said that more than once. If you go to war, you take anyone who will go with you, I think is the way I remember you saying it. But From when the peace comes, you divide. That's right. From the funless movement, we have... In your book, you have a chart about militant, moderate, and neo-evangelical. We're, we're in a place now where in the last oh, four or five years, the word evangelical has fallen on hard times, John. Yeah, it has. And that's why I wouldn't use it. When it doesn't have a cohesive definition that's recognizable, it's useless. And so the words are just forms to facilitate conversation. When you look back on American history in your lifetime, what have been two, three of your biggest concerns, and what are two, three of your hopes? Well, my biggest concern is our cultural accommodation. I think we're losing the gospel to the social gospel. Justice seems to be defined by human terminology, not the character of God. I don't think God is wrathful. I think he's righteous. But he's also just, and therefore he punishes sin. So in a world that has no definitive criteria of choice-making, I find that deeply distressing. I think, for me, my great hope is the gospel is still powerful. God is building his kingdom. 
Uh, I think the question really for all of us is, do we want to be a part of what God is doing? The privilege of that. And that will bring restriction. That's fine. We need to be unappreciated for the right reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad people won't be able to see your facial expression when you said that. (laughs) <laughs> Dr. John Hanna, professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary. You're coming up on how many years this year, John? Uh, I'm over 50 now. Over 50 years. Love you, my friend. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters. 